1: Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A few years ago, I started investigating my wife's family history. Specifically, whether my wife's great-grandfather actually committed a perfect crime. And my in-laws, well, they're not exactly thrilled about it.
2: If you come out with a piece that says he was a murderer, then I will be sorry that we ever said we would contribute.
1: So, why am I doing this? Well, the woman who was murdered, she was my wife's great-grandmother. And I think she might be haunting the house I grew up in.
3: I woke up because my bed was shaking. Shake, 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 shake,
1: shake. Things also happened to me in that house, things I couldn't explain. But I didn't take any of it seriously until I learned about the others who lived there after me. You now have three completely unconnected families who have had some sort of inexplicable experience in the top floor of that house. Look, I know how this sounds, but I think this all might be more than just a bizarre coincidence because the ghost is a faceless woman and it just so happens that my apparently haunted house is right next door to where my wife's great-grandmother was killed by two gunshots to the face. Her murder was blamed on her brother, but I'm not so sure. Obviously, the question was, did Feather do it? Killed them both. And so, here I am, trying to figure out did my wife's great grandfather get away with murder? Is her great grandmother haunting my teenage bedroom? And while I'm at it, did I end up marrying into a family because a ghost wants me to solve a case that everyone has got wrong for nearly a hundred years? You are deconstructing an age-old story.
3: We're going to be more traumatized by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that.
2: There is going to be blowback.
1: I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering and Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a show about the things that come back to haunt us.
4: Hey lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and a fascinating case and interview about the murder of Dr. Naomi Dancy. Many of you have asked for this deep dive analysis of Dr. Naomi Dancy's horrific and brutal murder which was the subject of the hit podcast Ghost Story which you just heard the trailer for. I need to share the backstory of this and catch you all up before I dive into the interview. I know many of you listen to Ghost Story. I put it on blast on social media after I'd listened to the first three episodes. And perhaps on reflection, I was premature because as I continued to listen, I was underwhelmed and felt upset with the podcast and where it landed and the distinct lack of care and thought for Dr. Naomi Dancy, Mary Garston and Maurice Tribe. I felt Ghost Story missed the mark and the ending was particularly jarring. And there are spoilers in my two episodes about the case, so this is your spoiler alert and a trigger warning too, because Dr Naomi Dancy's murder was particularly horrific, as was Morris Tribe's death. So I want to start by telling you about what happened to Dr Naomi Dancy first before we get into our analysis, and I'll also explain who she was, the victimology. Dr. Naomi Dancy was murdered in the early hours of November the 23rd, 1937. She was a 49-year-old mother of three and a pioneering surgeon. Dr. Naomi Dancy was shot at close range in both eyes as she slept in her bed at her Richmond home. The killer was believed to be her brother, Morris Tribe, who according to Dr. Naomi Dancy's husband, Dr. John Dancy, had attempted to shoot him too, and then locked himself in the lavatory and slit his throat. At the time, the verdict of the coroner's inquest had been one of murder and suicide. The police closed the case phenomenally quickly and believed everything Dr. John Dancy told them. They considered the surviving doctor extremely lucky to have escaped becoming an additional victim. Also, according to Dr. John Dancy, Morris was a chronic alcoholic who had been terribly injured in the war and he had been brought to the Dancy's house to recover from a recent drinking binge. Whilst there, he had apparently discovered he'd been left out of a new insurance policy that the couple had drawn up. This is what Dr John Dancy said was what triggered his murderous frenzy. OK, back to present day. On January the 6th, 2023, I opened an email from Annie Brown, the producer of Ghost Story, albeit the project didn't have a name when she emailed me. Well, she didn't share it, even if they did. She outlined the case and explained that there were unanswered questions about the investigation and she felt that because of my amazing work, my perspective would be invaluable and that she was specifically interested in how I would interpret the evidence in the police file, the profile of the victim and the alleged killer and any potential missteps in the investigation process. Admittedly, I was intrigued, particularly given the victimology and the unusual crime scene behaviour, and so I gave my time, which turned out to be multiple days of work for free, despite a heavy workload combined with raffying. My starting point was the victimology, then the crime scene assessment and Dr. John Dancy's statement. Now, before we dive into this fascinating interview, I want to begin with you hearing about the sheer brilliance of Dr. Naomi Dancy right at the start of my episodes. After all, centering the victims is what we should all be doing and what I've spent decades trying to ensure. Take a listen to this. It's from the last episode in Ghost Story.
1: We learned that it was during World War I that her career took off. The men had gone off to fight, and Naomi was one of the first women doctors to be recruited as a surgeon at her hospital, a job previously held exclusively by men. Oops, there's is another one by Naomi. She rose in the ranks, but also kept working with mothers and babies in some of the poorest corners of London. Page three, five, two. When she wasn't seeing patients, she was known as one of the most gifted lecturers on social issues. She gave as many as 120 lectures a year. That's at least two nights a week, sometimes more. So this one is about conversations with children. In one lecture, she spoke about the importance of not lying, specifically not lying to your children she tells the audience that to deceive a child is to commit a grave sin. In So there you go. By the end of our research, I felt like we had a real sense of Naomi the doctor. But Naomi the person, still not so much. And then we found one more document. It was written by a friend and colleague in the days after her death. Later, I would send it around to the whole family. I wanted Mark to read it, my father-in-law Johnny, Hugh, all of Kate's cousins, and the youngest generation of Dancy's too. And of course, I asked Kate to read it. It's titled, In Memoriam, Dr. Naomi Dancy.
3: All those, and they were indeed many, who were privileged to be associated with Dr Naomi Dancy in the work of the Council, will mourn the passing of a colleague of outstanding ability... And and
2: truly remarkable attainments of character and personality.
3: It is indeed given to few to realise the almost complete identification of ideal and achievement that was so wonderfully expressed in the life and work of one whose place can never be filled.
5: As member of committee... As As a a doctor doctor, and as a lecturer,
4: lecturer, we shall long long remember her and and the the unique contribution she made to all our endeavours. But most of all,
5: all,
3: will she be missed as a friend of deep understanding
5: and unfailing helpfulness.
3: Nothing could have been more fitting than the memorial service at the Church of St. Catherine Coleman, For in the congregation which filled the church were to be seen so many mothers with little children clustering around them.
1: So many mothers with little children clustering
3: around them. It was to the
2: comradeship of such that Dr Dancy gave her life.
3: And no company could have honoured her more.
1: At that memorial service, the vicar ended his sermon with this.
3: If she were standing in my place today, she would ask first that you would extend to her brother the most merciful judgment that is possible. She would ask you to realise that he never, never wanted to go to the war. That he went because he felt it was his duty. Those of us who knew her knew her so well for her beauty. But the beauty we admire more is the beauty of the high soul and noble character.
4: For me, that speaks volumes about her. Mothers, children, friends, colleagues, all turned out at her memorial. People said she was beautiful on the inside and out, and noted her for her higher soul and noble character. And I'm sure there's much more, However, isn't it interesting that Dr. John Dancy memorializes himself as a hero in the story of Dr. Naomi Dancy's murder, claiming that he evaded a bullet and that became the story? Even Dr. Naomi Dancy's murder became about him and his self reported heroics, and that stood out to me immediately. Of course, no one is alive to contest his account, but his four page statement was available to me, and I noted significant indicators of deception which I'll share with you. Also, and a big spoiler alert, the last episode in Ghost Story in particular detailed a séance, a psychic and a ghost having the last word as to what happened, that Morris killed his sister, Dr. Naomi Dancy, and then killed himself. Both Tristan and Kate were massively relieved. Tristan is a very likeable, personable reporter and storyteller leading us through Ghost Story. He married into the Dancy family when he married Kate, Dr. Naomi Dancy's great-granddaughter. I felt that Dr. Naomi Dancy and Mary Garston, the second wife of Dr. John Dancy, who also died suddenly and unexpectedly in the house late one night when he was the only other person present, deserved better than this cop-out of an ending. I didn't even know about the second wife when I analysed the case file, but when I did, huge alarm bells were ringing for me. Also, for the record, I did feel some sympathy for Tristan. He was caught between a rock and a hard place, and his family relationships are important to him, of course, and we get that sense throughout the podcast. In fact, when you listen to all the episodes in Ghost Story, you hear from various Dancy family members, including Mark Dancy, Dr John Dancy's grandson, who happens to look just like his grandfather, and who also calls himself Fader. You hear what's important to them namely preserving the family name at all costs. And although it's revealed that Dr. John Dancy was a liar, a fantasist, and a storyteller of epic proportions, a watermitty of sorts, somehow this has been romanticised as eccentricity and that he was, and i quote, of extraordinary brilliance by Mark, rather than perhaps that they're indicators of psychopathy. Take a listen to this.
1: Mark knows that Father made things up. But he sees the fabrications as harmless exaggerations, almost a charming eccentricity. It's this sort of completely, pretty much unnecessary, sort of little deception that
2: he he gloried in. He absolutely loved it. Why? Um, that, that was his mind, you know. You know, he, he loved putting one over people. I think he gloried in a deception well
1: well executed. And Mark sees this whole attempt to make head or tail of Feather's stories as something that would have really tickled the man.
2: That's the way Feather worked, in a sense, you know. He'd be delighted to think that people couldn't decide either way about it. He sort of liked to sow uncertainty.
1: Extraordinary man. Mm. I mean it it leaves it leaves you with a sort of sense of frustration. Yes, but I can see Father
2: laughing. In heaven, if you see what I mean. You'd have been laughing at all the effort that has gone in to try and unravel all this. And that nobody can be quite sure. Yes.
1: It was a bit awkward to be sitting with Mark while he was relishing Feather's love of deception. At the time of this conversation, I was still in the middle of reporting the night of the murder, still speaking with detectives and trying to understand. I wasn't totally clear on how I felt about all this, so I hadn't yet shared any of my reporting with Mark. But in this moment, I was distinctly aware that while Mark was saying one thing, I was hearing something else. Uh, On whatever level you
2: take what he wrote, it shows a certain brilliance. Well, if it was a deception, it shows a a rare talent in deceit.
4: Just think about the double standard here. Dr John Dancy wrote a 3,000-page memoir that had been plagiarised from other published works and he omits Dr Naomi Dancy. Yet he is seen as brilliant for it, and the family wanted it to be published regardless of its dubious provenance. Extraordinary. However, I didn't know any of this when I analysed Dr. John Dancy's statement. But what did stand out were multiple markers for deception, and you'll hear more about that, the details and specifics, in this conversation with Jackie. Mark also shared his thoughts about Dr. Naomi Dancy and Dr. John Dancy's psychology. Take a listen to this.
1: Mark's theory is that Feather just lied for the sport of it. But later in our conversation, Mark said something that sounded to me like a more likely motivation, psychologically speaking. You know, he arrived home without a particular job to go to, I think. And Naomi was still struggling along doing her work. We were talking about Feather coming home from World War I. And like thousands of veterans at the time, he couldn't find steady work. And he had to
2: try and pick up the pieces and found it extremely hard-going, I think. And he was a sort of second-class citizen, I think, to a certain extent, you know, because she was the breadwinner.
1: What do you mean a second-class citizen?
2: Well, because he wasn't bringing anything into the family, requiring a wife who was working really hard to support him. And Naomi, I don't know how sort of solicitous Naomi would have been. She comes across to me as being pretty hard. Hard in what way? Well, I think she's so focused on her work, you know, and the fact that she's doing things which women hadn't done before, that she may have resented the fact that she had to go home after a hard day's work and look after someone who was a a pale shadow of his former self. And, you know, someone of his sort would have found it very difficult to handle the sort of loss of status. Maybe, uh, you know, men were men. In those days.
1: (laughs) So, maybe, and to be clear, this is my theory and not Mark's maybe Father told all these grandiose lies because he was ashamed of the reality of his life. Maybe his memoir is just an attempt to pass on a much more heroic story to his kids and grandkids. But that lie meant there were other stories he didn't tell. Don't you think it's strange that when he sits down to write the story of his life, he makes no mention of the fact that his wife was murdered in the family home? Naomi is mostly absent from the story, Father tells. When she does appear near the end, one of the main things we learn is that she was a stickler about lying. Father tells us Naomi is the reason he left the spy service. She didn't approve of it and wouldn't marry him unless he gave it up. Feather writes that Naomi had, quote, read somewhere that every successful spy had to be a murderer at heart. So he blames the end of this potentially fictional career on his very real wife? That's kind of it. In the story Feather passes on to generations of Dancies, he essentially erases Naomi's legacy. And that's got to have some effect on the family.
5: Again, going back to the family legend... Father is this dominating, domineering, intellectually powerful adventurer. Naomi wasn't present. Here's my brother-in-law
1: Hugh again. Naomi's absence from the family's history came up during one of our occasional conversations about the project.
5: I mean, putting aside any kind of mystery about her death, it's just that story of great female accomplishment didn't exist in that form.
1: And with Naomi gone, what remained, Hugh thought, was
5: explicitly male. I mean, I grew up with this strong sense of a through line from father to grandad, in particular, something that was handed down, but also kind of with a great big shove of drive and, and achievement, intellectual, male intellectual achievement. That felt like an absolute thing.
4: So let me get this straight. Dr. Naomi Dancy, who worked hard as a pioneering surgeon, a mother and a wife, is presumed to be a hard woman. That's a lot of mental gymnastics and filling in the gaps, not to mention a gigantic portion of male privilege and entitlement. Talk about viewing a woman through a male lens and turning an incredible woman into something negative. Compliments, of course, of the patriarchy. That's how mind-bending this whole case is and the family's reaction to the search for the truth in Ghost Story. What also struck me was the lack of empathy and compassion and the lack of admiration or curiosity for a pioneering woman who was well ahead of her time. These are some of the many reasons I felt compelled to correct the narrative through a female expert lens, because despite knowing all of this, Mark told Tristan that he didn't want Dr John Dancy's name to be tarnished. Take a listen to this
2: the question arises as to whether he was ever violent. And then, it was like Mark read my mind. You don't get the feeling that his tendency to like deceiving people would ever have a violent outcome, if you see what I mean. And obviously, I'm sort of alluding here to Naomi and all that.
1: Mm. What do you mean?
2: Well, we've established that he had this tendency to deceive, which makes him a deviant of a sort because most people don't behave like that. And the question is whether his deviance was sufficient to make him kill, which I don't believe.
1: After leaving Mark that day, my concern about how this project might affect him only got stronger and he made his feelings more and more clear to me. If you come out with a piece that says, you know,
2: he was a murderer, then I will be sorry that we ever
1: said we would contribute to it. Frankly, I was pretty terrified to fill Mark in on what I'd been learning. I put off having that conversation with him for as long as I could.
4: It seemed to me that Tristan felt more and more pressure to appease the Dancy family and I believe that took over and became the priority more so than the search for truth and justice and honouring the victims. Even Kate said that they would be more traumatised by the podcast than the murder which also underlines the importance of the family name to them all. I also didn't know that I was one of eight experts who were given the case file and asked to share our analysis. Unfortunately, six of us were reduced to a soundbite each, which was extremely disappointing. I believe people are interested in hearing more about the process of how you analyse a case and come up with your determination, and then you as listeners can decide for yourselves. Don't get me wrong, the production value of Ghost Story was great, they did a fantastic job, and it was brilliant immersive storytelling. However, for me, it left a bitter aftertaste. I really thought that they'd return to the experts so that we could explain our rationale for what we concluded and why we concluded it. But they didn't. And for me, that was a massive missed opportunity. I later discovered that Jackie also felt Dr Naomi Dancy became a footnote in the storytelling. And I asked you, lovely lot, whether you wanted to hear our actual analysis. And many of you replied, yes. Now you know I listened to you all. And now you all know about Dr Naomi Dancy and the backstory, let's dive into my detailed, unfiltered and fascinating conversation with the amazing Jackie Morton.
3: My name is Jackie and I'm a retired detective chief inspector from the Metropolitan Police. Lovely to yeah catch up with you again, and I remember you being at Scotland Yard. So I suppose, ironically, <laughs> seeing as we're talking about the story, my claim to fame is I was the inspiration of the character DCI James Tennyson in the award-winning series, Prime Suspect
4: which was an incredible series. And yes, I remember when I was at New Scotland Yard that we had been speaking to each other and you attended quite a lot of the masterclasses that I was running in the Commissioner's Fifth Floor Briefing Room. And that's really when we got to know each other. And I was slightly in awe of you. You probably didn't know that at the time, but I was just, you know, beginning my career and I was very much in awe of you. And, you know, a fantastic detective who's now doing things in the TV world. And actually, as you said, Jane Tennyson was based very much on you. And But you were also a a technical advisor to the show, were you not?
3: Oh, no, no, God, yeah. I I spoke with Linda for about six months and uh, took her to all sorts of places. And I was um, her police advisor, so to speak. And then after that, I did lots and lots of drama. Because Mm -hmm. Prime Suspect was so successful, then I had lots of Cause for help, for drama. And then, of course, the longer you're out, the police, you, you know, you kind of, you need to be in it to understand how procedures change, et cetera. So then I changed to documentary making, which I much prefer. I, I actually love the true crime stuff. So when I was asked by Christian to take part in a podcast with him and Annie to look at this case, then um, I was, yeah, very pleased to have a look at it.
4: Yeah, very interesting case. Very disturbing case, but fascinating. And I was so pleased to hear... Because I I hadn't heard anything of the series. I didn't know how they were going to even frame it or what the name would be when the team at Pineapple Studios reached out to me to ask would I be involved in this project, that they would like some insight given my credentials and that I focus on the victim and they wanted to hear what I might have to say about it. I didn't know there were other experts involved. So when the series did land and I heard your voice, I was very excited by that. And I thought this is going to be fantastic because Jackie is front and centre uh, so yes, before we dive into that, because we wanted to have a conversation about Dr. Naomi Dancy and some of the things that we saw in the police case file, I just want to make mention of The Bill, the the TV procedural series that you were also involved with, because I think that's probably when I last saw you. I'd come down to the set by your invitation, which I was very pleased to come and see, and because it wasn't that far from where I was living, actually, and we met several times, but you were involved in, in that show, and I always thought that that TV show was very good as a, as a procedural and actually very positive in terms of the police and just the complexities of things that the police are involved with. And you were very much involved in that. People probably won't remember the bill now. Some will of uh, a certain, certain age, but it was a, a really good show.
3: One of the things about the bill is we got experts in like you to talk about your work. And then we got other experts from Scotland Yard and other detectives from other departments in order to do our research. And again, the research was hugely essential to do for the programme like the bill because we wanted to get it right. You always have to remember the drama comes first in dramas, not a police documentary. But within that, you can thread the authenticity of a police investigation. Definitely.
4: Yes, and authenticity. uh, That really chimes with me and I know it does with you. You don't have to really create too much drama on top of the drama and being accurate is very important and representing things in an honest way, very important. Having experts to talk to you about certain things so that you represent it in the right way. And I think we share with that, particularly now in this genre of true crime where there's just been this explosion where everybody's interested in it. And in particular, the psychology and the behaviour and things that Jane Tennyson, I mean, your character, you in Prime Suspect, that was very much about the psychology and behaviour, but a female perspective, female POV. And I actually think that's really important. And that's why with Ghost Story, which is a very odd title, we were the two female experts. And I thought that that was quite interesting that there were two females, you and I, involved. And there were lots of things that you said that really chimed with me. And I think female experienced, whether you're a detective or whether you have psychology in your background, you do see things slightly differently, particularly when talking about male violence towards women.
3: Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And again, there was no precursor to this. It was just that they would send me the murder file from the National Archives and ask me to read it. And then Annie from Pineapple and Christian flew over from New York to interview me in my home and asked me a number of questions and asked what I considered to whether or not it was murder, suicide and murder. and um, or murder-murder, actually. So I have to say that I didn't believe that it was murder-suicide. That was my first thought. And I believe immediately that the police made that decision of murder-suicide. And it's interesting that the police record, there's a little report here dated the 23rd of November, a police report Police record at 1 a.m. 23rd of November a case of murder and suicide which occurred at 29 Queens Road Richmond Morris Odell Tribe age 43 an ex army officer shot his sister Mrs Naomi Dancy age 49 through both eyes as she was asleep in bed he then went to a lavatory adjoining the bedroom and cut his throat with a razor so what's interesting about that 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 report was dated the 23rd of November at 5:20 a.m. The murder was four hours and 20 minutes earlier. So what we're saying here is that in four hours and 20 minutes, the police decide that it was a murder-suicide. That is quite unbelievable. Yes. And that, that dictates thereafter what happens, which, as you know, later on in the story, anonymous letters are received by uh, to the police saying, all oh, is not what you think it is. So we can get on to that. But you wanted to speak, did you not, about his statement to the police and what you found is about the deceit and discrepancies in that?
4: Yeah. So just walking us back, I was contacted by Annie Brown to ask, would I look at the case and and provide some insight? and they provided me with the case file. So I had the 51 pages long case file report, which pretty much had everything in from the police, and it included Dr John Dancy's statement and the sister-in-law's statement, the police statements, and the two letters that you just referenced that came in. They they were barely legible, really. It was very hard to, to read them. But they also supplied the 37 pages from the coroners as well, which duplicated some of that information. So Dr. John Dancy's statement was in there again. And then they also provided me with Dorothy Sayers' um, notes of her phone call with Dr. Jan Dancy. Now that ran to seven pages. The coroner's inquest report was about 37 pages and 51 pages for the case file. So suffice to say that this work takes time. And, you know, when you're contacted, For me, it was an email and it was all done via Zoom. But what people don't hear is in Ghost Story is the whole narrative of what I said as an expert in the full conversation, but also all the work that goes into it, because the detail is so important, isn't it, Jackie? That looking at times, looking at the time date stamp of what was said by whom and when... And one of the first things that I said to Tristan and the team when we spoke was, "Well, it's interesting to me because it stated that Dr. Naomi Dancy died at twelve twenty a.m. and Maurice Tribe died at twelve thirty a.m. But the police call came in at one thirty-seven. Yes, exactly. Dr. John Dancy calls the police at one thirty-seven. What's going on in that time gap?" He says in his statement, so the statement was very important to me. That was the first document that I read. It was four pages long from Dr. John Dancy. And I really wanted to hear and read and, and dissect his narrative. And as I said to them, it's the most important statement to start with because he was in the house at the time. And he is primarily a witness, if not a suspect. That's the first thing that when you attend, you must be thinking But I, like you, saw immediately that the chief inspector had written that there's no doubt that Tribe shot his sister and committed suicide. So there's no doubt that was what was written. So what it told me just right from the start was that Dr. John Dancy is somebody, because he's a doctor, he would probably be placed as a high authority person in the community, but also the police would see him as a high authority person in his account and would probably trust what he's saying without question.
3: There was some mention, and I can't find it in the papers, but there was some mention that he may have been a police surgeon. Oh, interesting. So that the police would know him in any event. That's not corroborated, but I'm sure Tristan told me that by the by. But there was this deference to Dr. John Dancy by the police that whatever he said and stated was factual without actually examining it in great detail that you and I have done. Interestingly, I did not have the coroner's statement. I just had the file and the papers included in that were from Dorothy L. Sayer, but I didn't have the coroners. But yes, so shall we have a look at his statement?
4: Yes, I mean, his statement, first of all, what I did just to tell people and you about methodology was that I look at the balance of what's said. So how much is extraneous to the actual event? So within that, I saw that there were 34 sentences out of 135. So his statement was four pages long, 135 sentences, but only 34 related to the actual murder event itself. Now, that being 25%, it actually points to deception just because that would normally be the f- the most important thing that's being described and the way that it's described is very important when you're analyzing it because you would expect things like smell, taste, touch, sound, spatial movement that point to veracity. So when someone says it smelled like I could smell that a gun had been discharged or as I dropped down to the ground, I could smell the carpet. Like people when they're in a stressful situation tend to have heightened senses. So you do tend to hear them talk in that way. The challenge that I saw, and I will read Dr. John Dancy's statement, was when he was talking about the actual event, it lacked Detail. It was quite vague. It was non specific. And it was like he was telling it, but not and hadn't lived it. And there is a big difference when you've lived something. And of course, trauma can play a key role. We know that trauma has an impact and that can really manifest itself in different ways with different people. And we have to bear in mind that he's a doctor. And therefore, he may be much more clinical in the way that he describes things. But at the start of the statement, what intrigued me was that he talked about Morris in such negative terms immediately, that he was an alcoholic, that he was mentally unstable and that he um, had made threats to Dr. Naomi Dancy. And by the way, all throughout the police file, there wasn't really a reference to Naomi Dancy being a doctor, She was referred to as Mrs. Naomi Dancy, and I I felt that that was you know problematic because she was actually the more experienced doctor she was practicing at the time, not John Dancy. But even in the police file, I felt it was quite misogynistic, and that she was just a footnote. I don't know if you observed that too, Jackie. Oh,
3: absolutely, absolutely, yeah, hundred percent.
4: I always think when women have titles that they get lost or left out of the conversation and he was the only person. He controlled,
3: yes, I, I think it's what happened, what, what's quite apparent in this statement is he controls the narrative. He controls the whole narrative of what happened and all of the other behaviours and surrounding it. I found that um, he was wanted to be in complete control.
4: Yes and he was in control of the narrative and I think that for me also stood out to your point that they were very quick based on what he told them to determine that what he said was a truthful and accurate account of what happened i.e. it was simply a murder suicide and therefore there wasn't a there wasn't professional curiosity And that will resonate with you, I know, as a seasoned detective, the keeping an open mind and professional curiosity to challenge and to check and to corroborate. So I, like you, because I remember hearing you say, he had mentioned that Morris had made threats to kill his wife, Dr Naomi Dancy, but specifically to shoot her in the eyes. But that was not corroborated anywhere else. In fact, the sister-in-law said that he was a kind man, She never believed that he would harm anybody else. That wasn't his character or his nature. And so it wasn't corroborated that these threats had been made. But the first part of the statement was almost like setting Morris up. And it literally had every ingredient that you could possibly want in a murder case of alcoholic, mentally unstable drugs, threats to kill the wife, but very specifically kill her and shoot her in the eyes, which is very unusual. Very unusual method of kill, but the insurance was at play and that Morris was upset about the change in insurance and that he had nude photos, pornographic material, drugs, that he had a revolver, that... Dr John Dancy had heard soaring and filing coming from Morris's room and that he was concerned about Morris because these threats had been made. I mean, the first part of the statement felt like staging to me, that if you're going to point things in a certain direction, Dr John Dancy did exactly that perfectly. You're now going to hear the first three pages of Dr John Dancy's four-page statement. Notice how much time he takes setting the stage and the level of detail he goes into. The statement is read by actor Henry Hereford.
5: I am a medical practitioner and at the moment semi-retired. My wife, Naomi Dancy, was Assistant Medical Officer of Health at Hammersmith, where she has worked for 16 years. We had three children, a boy aged 17, a boy aged 15 and a girl 14 years of age. Morris Tribe, aged 44, an army officer pensioned with severe head wounds and with loss of an eye, was my brother-in-law. He is married, but by agreement living apart from his wife, Dorothy Mary Tribe, of Number 19 All Saints Road, Clifton, Bristol. She earns her living as a social worker. Morris Tribe has always been a heavy drinker since his youth. Lately, he has had a worry over his business. He has been losing the sight of his remaining eyes, and Mrs Dancy, my wife and I, thought we must keep him. Under directions from a specialist, I have been giving him injections every Monday for the past six Mondays for his eye. He has made great progress, but recently, last week, he had a relapse with his drinking. His failing vision was due to smoking and drinking. On Friday, ten days ago, he drank very heavily. His wife came up from Bristol and found him unconscious at his rooms, No. 5 Trafalgar Square, Peckham. On Saturday morning, after this, he rang up and threatened to shoot my wife's eyes out. He has on previous occasions rung my wife up and threatened the same thing. I was very upset and I rushed off in the car to fetch her from Hammersmith and to know that she was safe. On the following Monday, 18th November 1937, I sent her off to her mother's to spend the night at No. 28 St. George's Square, Victoria, because Morris was coming for that night. But Morris was penitent and seemed hurt that she was not here. Morris's sister in law rang me up on Sunday, the 14th of November, to ask if there was any hope for his eyesight. She said he had been threatening her sister, his wife, and I asked her if I could speak to Dorothy. She said, No, Morris is watching her. She will have no opportunity. I asked her to give Dorothy a message that I will write to her to inquire about a possession of Morris's at Bristol. She replied, oh, a revolver, and told me she was very nervous of what he would do to Dorothy. I told her that Morris had told me that the revolver was on a wardrobe at his wife's home in Bristol. I promised to tax Morris with it once more. This I did, and Morris told me that he only used this threat to annoy the women but that, in fact, he had thrown the revolver into the canal. He left his house, 29 Queens Road, on Tuesday morning, the 16th of November. At 7am, he rang me up. He was weeping drunk and said that he'd always loved Naomi and he would not hurt her. His threats were due to a craving for affection. At 7.45pm the same day, he was knocked down somewhere in the street and was brought to his mother's house, where he said he had had a stroke. Both his knees were badly injured and I went and saw him and treated him. His family would not let me take him to my house at once as my wife and I wanted to go to Winchester on Saturday but I promised to fetch him early on Monday, the 22nd. I went to his mother's house to lunch and afterwards took Morris to his rooms by his urgent request. He wanted clothes and I suspected he wanted bottles. He went into the back room and asked me not to go with him saying that he did not want me to see what a mess it was in after his drunken bout. I heard him filing or soaring. I hurried him up as my housekeeper, Mrs Brooks, was being kept waiting. Although his knees were bad, he would not let me pack for him, but he allowed me to carry his case, although he kept hold of it. I assumed there were bottles in it. He was sober then, but very surly. On his way to my place, he made me stop and he went into a telephone box on each occasion. He asked me to stop in the car as it was Mr. Lake's business. Mr. Lake is a director of Sparks and Mead Engineers Peckham where Morris was the managing director. We got home at 3pm, half an hour late for Mrs. Brooks to leave the house. I put Morris into his room on the first floor and put him into two armchairs as his legs were bad. I took Mrs. Brooks in the car to Brentford. On the way, I remembered there were insurance papers in the house which we did not wish Morris to see and also drugs. He was all alone in the house. I left Mrs Brooks and came home. I came in silently and saw him sheepishly shutting his door. About 15 years ago, Morris took my wife, without my permission, to an insurance company, had her examined and insured for £1,500. He paid the first two premiums without my knowledge, but after that I have kept the payments up. The final payment is due this week. Morris knew this as he was drawing commission on the policy. He had been pressing hard for her to reinsure, and last night, after my wife came home from business, he waited till I was out of the room and he said to her, I hear you are being reinsured. I heard this through the door and went back. I made signs to her to say no. She said, Has Jack been telling you? Meaning me. I chimed in and said, Ah, but nothing has been settled, Morris. He looked at me and then at her and said, well, if that's the case, you need not expect to live to draw the money. I said, don't be ridiculous, Morris. No one lives to draw their own insurance money. He said, anyhow, you can go your own way if you left me out of it, but I think you are mean. My wife said, you know, Morris, if you had it, you'd only drink it. I sent my wife to bed and went and peeled an orange for her and told her to go to sleep as she was tired and I would write to the children and get it off tonight. This was after twelve at night. Then I went to stoke the fires in the basement and came up to my study on the first floor and started to type letters to the children. I could hear Morris, who was in the next room, moving about. I left my door a little ajar so that I could hear what he was doing. I expected him to go to the lavatory. After about an hour, I went and attended to the fires again as I was going to have a bath. I came back to my study and carried on with the letters. At about 1.10am, I gauged the time because I rang the ambulance up 20 minutes afterwards. I heard him go to the lavatory and lock the door and shortly afterwards I heard shots.
4: OK, so that's everything that he said before he gets to the actual murder event itself. I'm always interested in the balance of a statement. I count the lines in the statement describing the before, during and after the significant event and I also work out the percentage for each. You're now going to hear the rest of the statement about the murder event, so here's your trigger warning.
5: I thought it was three. I went to the door and saw Morris advancing from the bathroom towards me. I said, Morris, what have you done? He was advancing towards me with a revolver in his hand pointed at my head. I tried to reason with him, but he kept coming towards me saying nothing. I pretended to lean against the door and I realised he meant to shoot me. I switched the light out and dropped flat to the floor. He shot as I fell and the bullet whizzed by my ear and went through the back window. I laid quite still and pretended that I was hit. He then went into the lavatory and closed the door behind him. I went to the lavatory door which adjoins the bathroom and tried to force it. I found it was locked from inside and I called on him to come out and give me the gun. He said, ''Stand away from those panels or I'll shoot you like a dog.'' I then went into the bedroom, which also adjoins the bathroom. I saw my wife in bed. She had been shot through both eyes and blood was spurting from one of her eyes. I went upstairs and got my housekeeper out of bed, and she got up and dressed. Eventually, after a struggle, I forced the door of the lavatory with my shoulder. I found Morris in a somewhat sitting position, with his head bent forward onto his chest, and he was giving deep, inspiratory convulsions at intervals. A razor fell from his hand as I pushed the door open. The revolver was on the floor by his right-hand side. I felt for his pulse and found him pulseless. I pulled his head back and found that he had a severe gash in his throat. The lavatory was saturated with blood, and he had blood on his right hand. I left him and went into the bedroom to look at my wife. After a lapse of a few minutes, I telephoned the ambulance and later the police. Signed, John Dancy. Statement taken and signature witnessed by John Nicholson, Detective Inspector V, at nine thirty a.m. on twenty third November nineteen thirty seven.
4: Did you notice a difference between the two sections? The first three pages are what we call an extraneous prologue. So many details in the setup, yet conversely, details and specifics are missing in the last page of the statement about the actual murder. The extraneous prologue is an indication of deception. So too is missing time. And I'm not done with the statement just yet, but let's rejoin my conversation with Jackie and hear what she has to say. He absolutely set it up. It was a classic, I'm
3: going to set this arena up. And the other thing is, he sometimes let himself down because when we talk about the murder, Morris tried poor guy who had a military honour was blinded in one eye and his second eye was failing. His second eye was failing and that he'd had an accident and he had really, really damaged his knees. So it's in the background of a man who can hardly see. He's just had an accident and his legs are really damaged, especially his knees. And then we go into great detail about what Dancy says that Morris did on that day in spite of. So, for example... Was the light on in Dr. Naomi's bedroom when he shot her? How could he have shot her if the light wasn't on? How could he have shot her if he could hardly see? And some of the questions that you spoke about, the lack of professional curiosity in terms of evidence, there was very little evidence in the detail in the police report about the minutiae of how uh, this was one o'clock in the morning, it would have been dark. Dancy says that the blinds, the curtains weren't shut. Did that give light? But here is a man who is nearly blind. That's why he's with Dr. Dancy. He's giving him injections and stuff. So he contradicts himself in many, many areas in his absolute obsession as well about controlling the narrative and setting this up. So that is the first thing that I noticed when I read this he's setting this man up.
4: Yes, and, and that was my initial just within the first page of his statement, it felt almost too staged, too many ingredients that point directly to Morris and the eyesight issue. One was, he had one glass eye, and as you said, he in his other eye, his eyesight was failing. And therefore, given the preciseness of how Dr. Naomi Dancy was killed, was it the question I had, was it even possible for Morris to carry that out. Right. And then we learned through Dr. John Dancy's statement that he gave him injections every Monday. Well, the murder happened on the Monday. So the question mark for me was, did he give him an injection? Was he incapacitated? What happened you know, because each time before there'd be mention of an injection and it would almost sedate him and calm him. So would that have an impact? But the injection part was a question mark for me. The filing and, and soaring part was a question in Dr. John Dancy's statement where he said he kept his ear out for Morris as he would sent his wife to bed. He was concerned about Morris's behaviour, but he heard filing and soaring. And I put a question mark there. I thought it was a very odd thing to say, but then later on we find out that the bullets had been altered by someone using a doctor's, a surgeon's hacksaw. So again, could Morris have done that with this failing eyesight and it was just a question mark and it just seemed to be another stage sentence for me? And I, like you, Jackie, I don't reach a determination. I just raise the question. And you have to put the flag down and then it's something you go back to and think about in terms of your answer, But the fact that I took it that Morris was almost blind and then you have Dr John Dancy later on saying, well, he, to Dorothy Sayers, that he read a lot. He read detective novels. Well, I query, well, how can he be almost blind but now he's a prolific reader of detective novels? That that just doesn't sound right. He can't have it both ways.
3: No, and he has a book apparently in his room called Murder in the House. I mean, it's just, you couldn't make this stuff up, could you? You couldn't make it up. And he can't read, he can hardly see... And oh, by the way, he says that he was always reading trashy stuff like that, you know, detectives, uh, thrillers. He loved them. And the one in this room was called Murder in the House. It's unbelievable. I just kind of, anyway, like you, we kept an open mind and kept going through it and making notes as I was going along because already you would want to ask so many questions in the first page and a half of his statement, wouldn't you?
4: Yes, and it's the questions that were never asked. So that, for me, was why was he allowed to just give his narrative and it not to be corroborated or fact-checked with anybody or challenged, even pushing to test him? How could that happen? I'm jumping in here to wrap part one. Mark Dancy said that Dr John Dancy was a man who loved getting one over on people, and delighted in a deception well executed. Mark also said that when Dr. John Dancy arrived home after the war, he couldn't get a job, and Dr. Naomi Dancy was working hard, and she was now the breadwinner. He opined that someone of Dr. John Dancy's sort would find his loss of status hard to handle. That intrigued me, as I think that's accurate. Men's egos can be, well, they can be rather fragile. Mark also said that he was a deviant for all the lies he told and posed the question, but was it enough for him to kill? Well, what he didn't reveal was that two weeks after his wife's murder, Dr. John Dancy introduced a new woman in his life, Mary Garston, also known as Mousy, to their children. She was 17 years younger than him and was very wealthy, and they married within a year. Nor was it mentioned by Mark when pontificating that it was in fact Dr. John Dancy who gained financially from the insurance policy. You see, once you start layering in the actual facts and the evidence and the totality of the circumstances, a very different picture begins to emerge. And I can tell you, I've worked on cases where men have killed women for a lot less. Join us for part two, where we continue analysing Dr. John Dancy's statement and the conversation with Dorothy Sayers Dorothy Sayers was widely regarded as one of the most erudite present day writers of detective fiction. She was one of the leading authorities on the history of crime fiction writing and occasionally wrote keen analyses of problems presented by actual murder cases. Why call a crime writer just weeks after your wife's horrific murder? Do you think he just happened to randomly pick Dorothy Sayers? We get into all of this and much more. Until next time, be curious ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheesley at Abridged Audio.